Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm here today with some really exciting special guests. I'm going to be talking to Gio and Taylor of Smart Bitch Dog Training, Curtis from Pet Parent Allies, and Jenna from Dog Liaison. And we're tackling a doozy of a topic, whether or not dogs can be racist. I want to start by saying that the Canine Conversations podcast has been really excited about this episode for a while, and we we recognize it might be perceived as late to the party. I hope that instead we can view it as a continuation of an important discussion that's already kind of fading from the news cycle. And I'm really, really grateful to Gio, Taylor, Curtis, and Jenna for joining me when they're already so busy. Um, race and racism is not an easy topic, and I apologize in advance for any potential missteps I or any of us make as we muddle through. We're all learning and improving as we go. Um, race and racism permeate our whole world from breed specific legislation that partially came about as yet another racist attempt to restrict living options for people of color to microaggressions at dog shows to the horrifying use of attack dogs on people of color throughout U.S. history. The dog world certainly isn't exempt from racism. And while Ursa and I will never understand what it's like to be black in America, we plan to continue learning and supporting movements towards equity wherever we can. So let's start out by introducing everyone. Um, we'll start with Curtis, then Jenna, then the Smart Bitch team. So tell our listeners a little bit about you, your business, the dogs you live with, and maybe just for fun, one thing you do that's not dog related that you really enjoy. So we'll start with Curtis. Uh, yeah, I live here in Philadelphia, and I started Pet Parent Allies after the previous company that I had worked for, Zoom Room, um, actually went out of business and I realized there would be a massive opportunity for another positive reinforcement trainer here in Philadelphia. Uh, and I offer private sessions, agility classes, uh, and I'm working on some fun, uh, fun workshops like a beer scent discrimination game, uh, and uh, teach your dog uh, indoor agility on your everyday furniture. Uh, <laughs> so I have a lot of fun with those. Uh, the two dogs that I live with are Vista and Docus. Vista is training to be a medical alert service dog for my wife. And Docus is the... Uh, all around every day, just true Heinz 57 circus dog. Uh, he's the dog that I test out all of my new uh, silly workshop curriculums on. Uh, the furniture agility, uh, the beer scent discrimination. He's currently learning to do a handstand and enjoying getting lots and lots of treats about it. And uh, my wife and I are avid gardeners. We live uh, in a pretty packed city square, but we have a second story deck that has that is full to the brim with uh, dahlias and lilies and uh, yarrow. And pretty much if it has a flower, we grow it in a, on our 10 by 10 foot deck. Yeah, so I'm Jenna. Jenna Romano. Um, I own Dog Liaison in Southern California. Um, my specialty, I mostly focus on reactivity, aggression, separation, anxiety cases. Um, and most of my clientele is online because I do have a YouTube channel. So um, a lot of my clientele comes from um, around the, 
the States or around the globe altogether. Um, I do own a YouTube channel called Dog Liaison. And on that channel, we post science-based research um, and then we review it and I show how it's applicable to common dog owners. Um, We have a little bit of how-tos on the channel so a little bit like how to get your dog to come, how to get your dog to stop counter surfing. Um, but the vast majority of the channel is really dedicated to examining uh, canine cognition from a more evidence-based science approach and, uh, you know, d- immediately relating that to how a person can interact with their dog. Um, I... Uh, let's see something fun about me. I am an avid lifter. So I lift weights every day, about six to eight times a week. Um, and deadlifts are my absolute favorite. And my dog's name is Max. Um, he's a Dalmatian. He's going to be nine next month. And Max is my ride or die. Um, we're both very independent. And so one of the things that I love about him is, um, he, a very large chunk of our relationship is, is pretty much split apart. (laughs) We kind of go off and do our own things. We can be, um, out at the park, but do in our own stuff. And we're perfectly content with that. Um, and I think that that makes our relationship a little bit more unique because, a lot of dog owner relationships are a little bit more codependent. <laughs> um, but Max and I work because we go off and we can we can really be our own selves. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, hi, guys. My name is Taylor Barconi. Um, I am half of Smart Bitch Modern Dog Training um, based in New Orleans, Louisiana. I am from New Orleans and currently working in New Orleans. Um, I am a um, certified professional dog trainer. I'm also a fear-free animal trainer. I had to put that in there. Uh, I have two dogs named Siri and Sashi. They are both Patagelle Terriers or Terrier mixes, to be honest. And they are, one is eight, the other one is six, making six in action next week, making six. Uh, these two, um, they've been in my life for almost eight years now, Siri, and they were the reason why I became a dog trainer. I realized that there weren't that many trainers that could help me um, years ago, so I decided to put on the big shoes myself and figure out how to do it myself. So that's what I did. And I'm really glad I've done that, having looked back. Um, yeah, uh, more about those two. Siri is my oldest girl. Of course, she's eight. She is my more um, quiet, uh, Gio like to call her emo, my emo child. She's very um, <laughs> to herself. And, you know, she loves people but for like five minutes after she's like, I'm done with you. I need to go relax now. Sashi is my very um, highly stimulated dog. She keeps me on my toes. If you've seen videos of her, she's a very vocal dog, but I love her. Um, And she really helps put a perspective for people who have, um, I guess you could say dogs with high drive or high energy dogs. But, oh, you can't can't live with them. You can. Just got to make sure you meet their needs and all that good stuff. So, yeah, those are my two dogs, and that's me. All right. All right. Uh, hi guys. I am Geo, other half of smart bitch. Um, same certifications as Taylor. I'll try to keep this brief. My two dogs are Beetlejuice and Powerline. Beetlejuice is a Dotson Jack Russell mistake. Um, I did not mean to get a dog that small, but he's my heart dog. Love him to death. He's my little office assistant sitting next to me right now. Um, he does next to nothing during these calls. Um, and then Powerline is a Doberman. He is crazy, two years old. He just celebrated his birthday yesterday. And by celebrated, I mean I baked him a cake and I did everything a crazy dog person would do. Um, 
Got into dog training because it was just kind of obvious. Got out of college, realized I went to college for no reason. Just kidding. Nobody goes to college for no reason. But, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I figured out, okay, maybe I should have just done this uh, from the get-go. But, you know, a lot of people don't think that you can actually do this for a living. Well, you can. Um, yep, met Taylor, started a business, and now we're the cool cats of New Orleans or cool bitches of New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, that's me. Oh, hobbies. Um, you guys can catch my super sick, awesome. I mean, I think I'm super sick and awesome. Um, Halloween costumes on my Instagram. My Instagram is super boring. My personal Instagram is super boring unless it's like Halloween time and then you'll see me making costumes. But that's pretty much me. Dogs and Halloween. That's that's pretty much uh, all to it. So yeah, that's me. That's a great combination. And Taylor, did you have a hobby that you you told us about? Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. Oh, uh, I guess you can say a hobby of mine is I'm an avid um, manga reader and anime watcher. I pretty much the expert on everything. You can ask me anything about any anime. I can tell you everything beginning to end. I know it counts a hobby, but it's my hobby. So yeah, that's me. Um, I love to be in forums online, debating with other anime fans, things like that. Um, let's read fantasy <laughs> novels. Um, just your all-around nerd. Super, super nerd. <laughs> That's me. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I love I love hearing about like non-dog-related hobbies from dog people because it's so easy to just get together and talk about nothing but but our dogs. Um, so for most of this interview, rather than kind of asking each of you guys specific questions, I'm going to let you guys chime in when you feel like you've got something to add there. Are, I think one question for Jenna and one question that starts out with Curtis that are kind of specific, but otherwise, um, we'll just kind of let you guys chime in. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, we've all heard it. Um, someone asserts that their dog is quote unquote racist or that their dog quote unquote doesn't like black people. Um, and in some particularly cringy conversations, I've heard a lot of people speculate that their dog must have been part of a fight ring or a cruelty case without any evidence because again, their dog quote unquote doesn't like black people. Um, so let's dive right into it. Can a dog even be racist and does it depend on how we define racism, whether how you answer that question? So I'll start. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of ways to unpack those questions. Um, and I would first say that anyone who's interested in um, really kind of getting an overview and less detailed they can go check out the video on my channel. Um, it's about 15 minutes long and it, it is going to be a very like condensed version. And I would say that today we'll probably be have time to get a little bit more detailed. Um, but I think that the, the biggest issue is that um, from a scientific perspective, which that's really my role in this conversation is to, to demonstrate the evidence from a science perspective, you know, that question has not been examined, unfortunately. The, the specific question, can a dog be quote unquote racist, has been really under-researched. Um, and I think that because of that, um, dog trainers and pet professionals, particularly, I'm just going to say it, white pet professionals, have a hard time articulating um, and answering that question. 
And I think that's why it's important to reach out to BPIOC and, and, ans- and have them help us answer this. Um, and, you know, I, I am not necessarily interested in putting words in the other trainer's mouth. So I'm going to let them speak for themselves. Um, but I can tell you that from a scientific perspective, there's really only one study that looks at this, which we'll get into a little bit later. And the, the problem with that one study, if we're being honest, is that it doesn't examine dog behavior. It examines human behavior. And so from a scientific perspective, that question is heavily under-researched and we need to do more. Um, That being said, there are things that we know for sure about how dogs perceive the world and about how dogs um, view people specifically and how they take in information. And that understanding of how they perceive people um, can inform us on the likelihood that no dogs probably statistically speaking are not racist (laughs) and that's probably not going to happen um so with that i think i'll turn it over to the other three (laughs) uh well i can speak from personal experience Uh, that I have never encountered a racist dog in my career. I've encountered a lot of racist people who have dogs, um, and I have encountered a lot of dogs who respond very specifically to the way their people's anxiety manifests. Um, But in all those situations, when I had the opportunity to work with just the dog outside of that person's influence, all of those things that they were claiming about just melted away. Um, like even doing, uh, some, uh, some dealing with some cases of separation anxiety, um, get when we had built up to the point where as the person, uh, was starting to leave for a few minutes, um, and, and had also claimed, their dog was racist or, uh, had anxiety around black people. Um, they would leave. And then all of a sudden the dog would turn to me and be like, Oh, great. You make sense. What are we doing now? Um, so it was, there have been a lot of moments in which it's been obvious where people's anxiety and people's racism is being projected onto their dog but looking at their dog in and of itself, looking at the true the true behavior of what that dog is doing, I have never had an incident where I thought, truly, this dog is racist. Okay, um, and for myself, it's Taylor speaking. Um, same thing as Curtis, I have never met a racist dog. I've met many fearful dogs, though. And before I even think, I don't even think about the color of my skin, I'm able to pinpoint exactly what is making them afraid. Number one, stranger. There's a stranger in the dog's house. I'm a stranger. Or maybe uh, the dog is sound sensitive and I accidentally click my clicker. Crap, she's scary. So it was never, um, oh, crap, it's a black person coming. The dog is obviously afraid. Now, it was never that. It was more of there's a human coming, and this dog is fearful of strangers. I think um, I want to add to that people are, are, they tend to underestimate how fearful how fearful their dog can be sometimes. They think, oh, my dog is okay with people. 
And I all, and meeting these dogs, I'm like, no, I don't think your dog is okay with people. He is shying away from me. He's jumping away if I move a certain way, if I move to the right or to the left a little bit. I think your dog has more fear towards people than what you realize. So um, as dog owners, it's really important to not underestimate how fearful dogs can be sometimes and not underestimate how socialization really does come into play with getting a dog used to seeing people, seeing pe how people move, and also realizing that um, dogs' behavior, it can change over certain, uh, over years. My dog, Suri, is, um, she was socialized very well, in my opinion. However, I noticed that she's eight now, and there are some things that she's a little bit more sensitive about than she was when she was one years old, and vice versa. So it's really important to realize that dogs' behavior can change, and color the skin, as we explained in the video, is the very last thing that they are noticing. It's more of the shapes, how the people move, how the how is the person speaking. And um, just to give you guys a good idea, pr most of our clients, smart bitches clients, they are white. And their dogs are probably primarily around white people. So when we come into their homes, these dogs are normal fearful and they warm up to us normally because we take our time with uh i'm making hand gestures you guys can't see uh <laughs> because um they if they're fearful people they tend to warm up to us pretty fast because we're trainers and we know how to carry ourselves around dogs um people are not as well versed as trainers are and in introducing themselves to dogs so of course it may take them longer to warm up to certain people such as friends or something like that but yeah, consider all these things before you say that it is the colors of mighty skin. <laughs> yeah, and, and to bounce off of that, this is Geo speaking. Um, it's always a hilarious question to be asked. Um, it's been asked a lot of times for the both of us. Taylor and I, we used to work at a doggy daycare for a time, and predominantly the staff was uh, BIPOC. I'm Puerto Rican, Taylor's black. Most of the people were black who worked in the back. And we get some pretty loose tongue clients who would just say, oh, LOL, I think my dog is racist. And we're like, the entire place, the majority of the people who work here are of color, apart from the uh, front desk people. Um, so they didn't know, I guess. And I think a lot of it stems from general ignorance. I don't think anyone means to sound malicious when they say it. Uh, some may. I'm not saying that that is not the case. I do think that there are some people out there who who um, actually kind of like the idea of their dog being quote unquote racist. Um, and they'll just say that happily like, oh, that's so funny. And you're like, oh, you're a racist. Um, <laughs> so not funny. Um, but I, I will say that whenever people ask that question, is my dog racist? Uh, you, you know, you're basically asking if, if your dog is even capable of recognizing race. Like me, myself, personally, I've never walked up to a golden retriever and that golden retriever asked me, what are you? Uh, you know, they were just interested in whether or not I had treats or if I was going to give them belly rubs or something. So uh, these are questions that people ask and uh, race is something that people recognize, not dogs. Uh, dogs aren't really concerned about the color of your skin, they're more worried about like the shape of your being or how you're approaching them or whether or not you are an opportunity or if you are dangerous. So uh, I always just think that's really funny. If you're like, oh, is my dog racist? And be like, um, it's really easy to ask that question when you haven't really assessed your dog. Like uh, it's also very easy to ask that question 
when you aren't taking responsibility for the lack of socialization. Um, and that being said, that's fine. Honestly, there's a lot of people out there that don't really have heavily socialized dogs. And these are dogs that just probably home dogs and never leave their house. They probably have a great life within their fence line. Um, but don't pass your dog off as racist if they've never even so much as left the house apart from going to the vet. Because I don't really think your dog knows anything. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much the kind of broad scope there. I also want to add that um, people who have put the time in with their dogs and their dogs are still showing um, fearful behaviors, dogs that you can consider to be well over socialized, um, the dog is still isn't racist. <laughs> um, we have met dogs over our time period of trainers, dogs who were put into situations a little bit too soon. When we talk about socialization, we mean smart proper association, not just expose the dog to everything. For example, uh, we're based in New Orleans. Mardi Gras is a huge thing here. We have people who bring their dogs to parades. I don't know if you guys ever seen parades on TV, but they are the loudest, the most crowded um, uh, events you can go to. And there are some dogs who seem to be not bothered by it. They're rare, but we see them. But there are a lot of dogs who go to this parade. They're shaking. Oh, my God. And people are like, why am I not, why am I not acting like this? I'm like, because it's a parade. <laughs> and there's so many noises and scents and things going on. And these dogs then start to become more fearful and they may react on that field. They may become aggressive towards strangers because they've been around so many strangers. Good example, we work with a lot of people who say, oh, my dog used to be okay with people and I always bring him to the bar with me. But over time, it just became more standoff and started growling more. And we always say, well, maybe your dog doesn't like to be exposed to these things so often. Take a step back. Maybe your dog just wants to be at home and relax, which is most dogs. So it's, it's important to realize that too, even if your dog is quote unquote well socialized or they seem to be and you are ignoring your dog's wants or tells, then your, your dog can still become a reactive dog and still show some signs of being fearful. But that's not towards certain type of people. It's, it's towards people. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's <laughs> yeah, put that in definitely. there. <laughs> Yeah. And I think what I was kind of trying to get at a little bit with this, you know, does it depend on how we define racism? Because I think maybe a couple of years ago, it was more common to define racism as believing that one race is superior to another. And I think conversations in the last several years have really shown us that like that is way too narrow of a definition of racism that lets so many people off the hook. Um, and I think we can pretty clearly say your dog does not believe that one race is superior to another. Um, my border collie might think border collies are superior to chihuahuas, um, but I don't think he has a, an opinion on skin color. Um, and uh you know, if we start thinking more about systemic racism and housing um, segregation and whatnot, I think that can play into some of this lack of socialization or neophobia that we see with our dogs. Um, and I'll tell a little bit of a story here and come clean. When I first got Barley, he was pretty neophobic. He was scared of people with trekking poles, people with backpacks, people with crutches, wheelchairs. Um, people on bikes were fine, but if they were pushing their bike, they weren't. Um, so we had a, bar a lot of barky, lungy, growly behavior with him. Um, um, and I worked really hard on it. We carried treats everywhere. He's much, much better now. And um, a year or two after that, when I thought we were more or less okay, we actually rented an Airbnb in a pretty heavily Sikh neighborhood um, outside of Vancouver, where a lot of the men wear, um, the they've got turbans and big beards and long robes. And we were right back to square one. But rather than sitting there and going, oh, my God, my dog is racist or anti, um, I guess not Muslim, but a, a lot of people would say that potentially when they don't understand the difference between Sikh and Muslim. Um, 
or, oh my God, my dog must have been beaten by a Sikh guy. Like we lived in Denver. That wasn't very likely. (laughs) Um, He just hadn't been exposed. So we just had to teach him that, hey, when we see those guys, we're going to get more food. We're going to get chicken. um, And we'll talk through how to work work through this later in the podcast. Um, But thinking about the fact that because of housing segregation in particular, your dog might be afraid of something that they haven't seen before, but that's, and that is a symptom of racism, but that's our problem, not your dog's problem. Um, I live in Missoula, Montana. I think it's 97% white here. Um, I think the state is 97% white. Missoula might be a little bit better. <laughs> um, but if and when I get my next puppy, I'm going to have to work really hard to expose them to anything other than white people um, in, in case I end up moving somewhere that's less white and that might end up being a problem. Um And I think a lot of people probably forget that when they're socializing their puppies or over-socialize the way that Taylor was describing. So why does it matter? And this is almost more of a human question, I I think. Um, Why does it matter for us to differentiate between like a fear of novelty or neophobia and racism in your dog? I think because uh, we tend, like I said in the video, we tend to anthropomorphize dogs way too much. Um, dogs are, they can't be racist. It's, it's literally not possible. So it's important that we realize that and go and think more about dog behavior. Let's make a collective effort to really learn more about dog behavior, dog anatomy, how dogs perceive the world, and not apply human concepts to a dog, which is a very, uh, I I just want to add that this question um, as a black trainer, it's kind of upsetting because dogs to me are the most pure creatures. They're so pure. So when we kind of ruin them, I say, oh, I think, I think the dog, dogs came to race. So people who, who love that, it's kind of like, that's not the case. They are the most pure creatures. That being said, um, always go back to that dog and how that dog is reacting and try to figure out what exactly is causing your dog to be to be reactive? Is it the bike? Is it the way the bike is moving? If you are not sure, always go to a professional trainer. Positive professional trainer, put that in there. Go to a positive professional trainer who can help you identify what your dog is fearful towards. And I promise you that you guys will probably be able to figure out exactly what it is. If not, then we'll figure it out and we'll work towards, you know, li- uh, minimizing your dog's own reactions. But it is not race. I think the other part is, uh, for me, that you can have dogs who are fearful of novelty and people who are fearful of novelty. And those behaviors often come out looking uh, largely the same, like avoidant behaviors or a heightened startle response. Um, when dog or person is really unable to settle down. Um, but those are usually also radiant triggers. Um, like you mentioned with Barley, it was like bikes and skateboards and poles and like all of these other things. Yeah. Traffic cones, all of these other things, um, that they would also be like reactive and fearful to. So to then just say like, Oh, this dog is racist after he also jumped at the traffic cone, the garbage bag, the leaf in the wind is ignoring, like ignoring the dogs. I think uh, general state of anxiety um, or ignoring a person's general state of anxiety. Um, 
just as you can have uh, dogs who are very highly fearful of novelty, you also get the entire other end of the spectrum where uh, Geo might agree Dobermans tend to run pretty low fearful of novelty um, and think they're just superior to everything and everyone. <laughs> um, but uh, those are... Uh, some of the things that we tested for bringing Vista home, like we dropped an umbrella right in her face and she had no reaction to it. And she like fireworks went off right above her head and she checked to make sure she was going to get treats. And then when she wasn't, she was like, okay, well I'll watch the fireworks. Um, so for, uh, I think a lot of times taking the dog's internal state into uh, the context is an important part of identifying what those what those fears and what those triggers are, and it's never going to be the dog is racist. Um, but people's racism shows through. I've noticed most clearly when there's a wide disconnect between their level of fear of novelty and their dog's level of fear of novelty. Um, and fear of novelty also being a facet that gets rolled into racism through propaganda, through housing segregation, through um, all of these societal and systemic things. But when they're showing like uh, a quick like yank on the leash or uh, like a gaze up and then a scuttle away and their dog is showing loose and happy la body language coming to check if I have treat in my pocket. It tells me more about uh, the person's fear of novelty than it really does the dogs or um, if the dog is racist, it's telling me the person feels there's something to be nervous about. And their dog is telling me, I would like to come and get treats. <laughs> yeah, uh, Curtis, I'm going to bounce off of that. You mentioned uh, my Dobie. So unfortunately, uh, my Dobie, when I, got, when I picked him up, he had already been through an abusive situation. So unfortunately, he's a bit of a chicken boy. Um, however, it's, he's a bit of a spaz. So he's like a chicken for 30 seconds and then he's brave. It's, you know, um, he's, it's a little whatever. He's crazy, but love him. Um, however, I think a really important thing in terms of like racism is, you know, if you have a reactive animal, like recognizing, like Taylor had mentioned, um, being more aware of your dog's behavior in general and not just trying to pinpoint one thing. And if you do have a dog who is prone to reactivity, whatever the case may be, or whatever they are reactive to, uh, being a little bit more of a proactive dog owner, like just don't walk around, um, with your head up your ass, <laughs> you know, doing whatever, whatever you may. I think a really good example of this is when I got Powerline and, you know, we started, he got comfortable in my home and Powerline is my Doberman. I'm sorry. Um, and we started training him and I recognized that he was a little bit of a chicken. So doing a lot of, um, counter conditioning work and a lot of exposure from distances and things like that, giving him time essentially um, also recognizing that he is a big boy, he's a Doberman um, in a predominantly black neighborhood and recognizing that because of racist ideals in the past, it's very common for people to be afraid of dogs. And so I don't want to walk around people thinking, oh, my dog doesn't like black people. Like that's not the case by, at any means. He's scared of everything. Um, however, I think it's, it's, it's a really important thing to know that if you own a dog who is reactive, also be mindful of 
what you are doing around the community as well. It is also your responsibility to stop perpetuating this idea on both ends. So just like I'm not going to tell people or, or to validate their, their suspicions that their dog is racist, I'm also not going to walk around with my reactive animal near people who may or may not be afraid of dogs, you know, kind of strengthening this idea. So, uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of something that just has to be tackled on both ends and really, really understanding, no, dogs can't be racist. If my dog is reactive, I'm going to keep him away from people or from things that, that would set him off. Um, and also educating people like, hey, dogs aren't really capable of that type of line of thinking because they literally don't, their brains aren't even like capable of that type of like justification or things like they really are just worried about whether or not you are safe or dangerous if you have food or, you know, if they just want to get away from you. Because a lot of dogs are not nearly as social as some people want them to be. Um, so yes, I think that's kind of a funny tangent um, in terms of like racism on the other end is making sure that you are keeping yourself, your dog safe and your community safe uh, so that you don't scare the shit out of your neighbors. <laughs> I was just going to say um, a couple things. First, I think the overall theme is, is first to when you're considering your dog's fear, whether you think it's relating to quote unquote racism or not. But if you think your dog is fearful, the first step is to try to be as objective as possible, right? The first step is really try to take yourself and your emotions out of the equation and look at it from a lens that is as a matter of fact as possible. And some of that may definitely require that you're introspective. For example, Curtis was talking about how if a person is just naturally jumpy, that can affect their dog. I, in my professional career, have had to be very aware of that because I'm naturally very startled. I get jumpy for the littlest things and people tease me for it, right? And so I always have to be very cognizant, especially when I have a puppy on the other end of the leash, but really any dog that what I'm experiencing is going to run right down into them. And these are things that we just have to know about ourselves and make sure that, you know, we're trying to minimize its effect on the dog as much as possible. And if it is affecting the dog, we are actively trying to undo that, right? We are aware of it and working hard to make sure that it's not long-term affecting the dog. Um, but I think that on the whole, a lot of this is about making sure that we are seeing the big picture and we're not letting our own perspectives and our own emotions affect how we view the situation. Yeah. It's so easy to project onto our dogs. And um, yeah. And especially when we do have some of these breeds as well as um, all of our listeners know, and you guys are finding out I'm a border collie nut. Um, you know, when we have breeds like herding breeds in particular that are really bred to, to notice the slightest ear twitch in a single animal out of a herd of a hundred, um, they're going to notice if you tighten up on the leash a little bit when you pass a given person. Or um, I know I had another example where Barley and I were in San Francisco for um, a conference and San Francisco has a really awful homelessness problem, housing problem. Um, and, you know, there were some people that did make me nervous. You know, you're stepping over needles and whatnot. And um, it took you know, maybe two days before all of a sudden my dog was starting to growl at people um, who looked a little bit different. I mean, it's it's amazing how fast we can train them to do these unwanted behaviors by just being a little bit nervous. And that's not just to, specific to herding breeds, but it does 
they do kind of pick up on this particularly quickly or and or under socialized or kind of naturally anxious dogs, which let's be honest, a lot of herding dogs are also just naturally anxious. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, really quickly, I had a very funny story to add to that as well. Um, one one time I was up my, both my dogs and we were they were sniffing. We we were sniffing. They were sniffing a bush <laughs> on the side of my house. And um, I didn't know this, but behind me, there was a um, 70 pound Amstaff. He was just, and he, I, he's a neighbor's dog. He used to be a neighbor's dog. I don't know if they still have him, but he used to get out all the time and he would come to my house because I had treats. <laughs> so I didn't know he was behind me. So I looked to my right, like, I said, I said, W-O-A-H, exclamation point. I cannot say it. And I looked and my dog, Stuart, who is not reactive, started to bark at him instantly because she knew that I was uncomfortable. So whenever I say W-O-H, W-O-A-H, exclamation point, my dog's like, what's happening? What's going on? So it took one event for my dogs to learn that when I say that word, that means that something is wrong with me. Or let's say um, if there's another dog um, close to me and near my house, they may react towards a dog because I had that one incident where I did react. So it happens very quickly. So how we behave, even if you're startled, really does matter in how your dog behaves. I want, I want to bring it up because it's the funniest thing ever to me. But um, yeah, just keep that in mind, guys. <laughs> yeah. And if anyone wants to try this at home, just try going, come in. Uh, to your door and see how many of your dogs react to that and start barking. It doesn't, for a lot of dogs, it doesn't even take a door knock. Um, but if you act like there's someone at the door, your dog's going to pick that up. Um, so that's a, a kind of harmless way to test that out. Um, <laughs> it took yes. me a while to be able to do that one without uh, Barley <laughs> reacting to it. <laughs> for my dogs, it's okay, I'll be right down, but into the phone. And that's when they know, oh, <laughs> delivery's here. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! I know the same, Curtis. Uber eats, and they, and they know the sound of my phone. Crap! They come and do that. Not for you, for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, I have that. My my dog really, really loves my boyfriend. And um, there was a period during the beginning of the pandemic. He was the only person visiting, obviously. And um, uh, the, we, the first visitor we had who wasn't Jason when I did the like picking up the phone saying, okay, yeah, I'll be right down and going down. That wasn't Jason. They got barked and growled at because he was like, what the heck? Where's my favorite person? So, you know, and I think the point with all of these fun stories is that we see these patterns elsewhere with our dogs of how good they are at picking up on this, how good they are at making these jumps, single event learning. And it do we don't call it racism when it looks like that. So kind of making this jump to being like, oh my gosh, my dog is you know, racist towards everyone who's not Jason. Like that's not <laughs> the lesson that we're taking away here because that's preposterous. Um, but because we live in a world where so many people are racist, it's so easy for us to project onto our dogs. Um, <clears throat> so Curtis, I've heard you make a really good point about working with fight bus dogs in the shelter. Um, you said that they might have some fears or concerns for that dog, but it's not often skin color. And I really love that point because it reminds us that our dogs aren't nearly as visual as we are. Um, so can you elaborate on that? Maybe tell that story again and some of the non-skin color related things that a dog might be picking up on instead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, so these were dogs that uh, were, came, uh, were seized from out of uh, fight busts um, or dog fighting rings uh, in and around Philadelphia. And the thing to note is they would go to uh, the SPCA where 
80% of the staff are black uh, or Hispanic. Um, the uh, animal cruelty enforcement officers are all people of color. Uh, and so these, uh, there would always be a note with these dogs profile that would say like fight dog or like fight, uh, fight dog. Um, but even as they were, uh, they're recovering from their experiences, I could go in and work with these dogs given enough time. A lot of them would come and they would be reactive to every dog every person, regardless of skin color, but that would be because every single experience they with a person that they had more or less was negative, and every single experience they had with a dog was a fight like to their death if they lost. Um, so like that's also a, like going to inform a lot of uh, how their mental processes work. But after enough time of just passing by, giving this dog a treat, passing by, giving this dog a treat, passing by, giving this dog a treat, they were then totally fine and I could work, bring them out to work on them. But I, so me being a behaviorist and trainer, I had a much different approach to a lot of the, the just general kennel attendants. Um, and there were a lot of people who I could always specifically tell were going to get barked and growled at because they would have the leash in their hand. They would run like right up to the cage and like fling the door open, uh, like all of these fast and abrupt, uh, like interactions and motions that are really going to startle these kinds of dogs. Um, and so they get like barked and growled at and like couldn't walk. Uh, these dogs, but it was never a matter of skin color. Um, the other part is that uh, dogs perceive their world um, hugely, hugely oriented by smell. Uh, like, like even that most people have kind of a like reddish orange undertone to their skin. I think means like regardless of skin color, a lot of people shade wise are going to look a lot the same to dogs. But these these dogs in uh, that were coming from out of the fight rings uh, with very specific people who worked on them, uh, who worked on them well and approached them respectfully uh, if they knew how to do that. So coming up and being very slow, uh, or, um, like just giving them a bunch of treats before even trying to do anything, avoiding eye contact. And that was a huge one, uh, and approaching sideways. Um, it was very easy to look at if you removed uh, any verbal language communication between the dog and the person, um, or between me and the dog, it was really, really clear who to see, who was going to get a aggressive type of reaction, um, from any of those dogs. And it was all about the approach. Um, like anybody who, and even before they started, like if it happened twice, um, the dog wouldn't, wouldn't then go with them like at all. Uh, where they walked up uh, like 
squared up to the dog and looked right at them and just swung their uh, swung their enclosure open um, versus having a much more patient approach and all of these dogs coming from out of the fight rings were able to uh, walk with people provided they had enough time yeah I think that's a really good point about just yeah it's so much about how you approach and how you interact with the dog and we had similar experiences at the shelter I used to work for um we did not have many um, people of color on the uh, uh, on staff, um, but the one guy that I worked with really frequently. I mean, he was he was fabulous with dogs, and he often had better luck um, than a lot of the other white people on staff because he, um, you know, he did a great job of yeah approaching with his side and staying low and avoiding eye contact and all of that is so much more important, even and potentially especially <clears throat> for these dogs where we might expect them to have more um, kind of concerning associations have having been made. So seeing that we, we've worked with a lot of these dogs and have not seen those associations tells us that it's probably not skin color. <laughs> that is the problem to the dog, maybe to the people, which I think is kind of the recurring theme through this. <laughs> uh, maybe if you're racist, your dog might show some concerning behaviors. <laughs> Um, so kind of winding down towards a little bit more practical side of things, if, um, if a client were to say something like this to you or when a client has said something like this to you, I suppose, um, what are some of your kind of go-to responses for a client? And then we'll, we'll kind of pivot and um, talk about maybe in a more casual response. Like if someone just said it at the grocery store, maybe they don't even know you're a trainer, um, and how you would address it there. So we'll start with client and then casual. Well, I think at the if I'm in public as someone, uh, well, typically in public, I don't know about you guys, I'm really quiet. I don't really talk too much about uh, what I do for a living because people kind of fish for information. I'm in the rush. But that being said, if a client asks, um, my first go to, uh, the lucky thing for me is that I haven't really been asked that directly from clients since I've been a trainer. Um, as you mentioned, this was mentioned to me um, by clients at the doggy daycare I used to work with when I wasn't in such a high position, people were more um, loose-lipped. That being said, if a client did ask me that, um, my first thing would be, no, it's not the case. Um, let's look into what else your dog may be fearful of. And like I said, this question really unsettles me, but um, if they, somebody hired me as a trainer, I kind of become very objective and like, okay, this is why this makes no sense. I will give them all the facts first. And then if we are close in the future, then I'll give them the feelings later. But the idea is let's look at what your dog is actually reacting to. Um, it's not the skin tone because I'm a black trainer and your dog is not reacting to me. Let's unpack that. So using all the examples that we've given so far and in a very um, constructive way, hey, it's not your dog cannot be racist. Dogs perceive the world differently visually. They um, perceive it mostly by scent. Um, does your dog react to other people as well? If the answer is yes, then that answers your whole question. It is pro it is humans that they are reacting to. They are fearful of not just black people or any other race. Uh, yeah, to bounce off of that, a really funny. So Taylor has never been asked directly. However, I was setting up a um, 
consultation we were going to go to and the the woman on the phone was really nice but she had expressed that she suspected that her dog was racist and just wanted to make sure that I knew because she knew that you know Taylor was black and um, I was really polite over the phone um at this point she had at this point she had already paid for the consultation so you're paying for me to be nice at this point um just kidding I am actually (laughs) really nice for the most part um but I think that is a really good point. Um, racism is so uh, lame. <laughs> it's such a it's such like an annoying topic sometimes to have to bring up when people are asking um, advice about their dogs because there's like so many, so much more that we could talk about. That's such a tiny silly uh, subject, especially in a professional's mind. It's really hard for us not to get a little fatigued when you hear a question like that because you're just like you know, why can't we just like move on to animal behavior? (laughs) Like, this is so silly. However, I think it's really important to know that like, obviously, yes, we do want to educate people uh, to the best of our ability, but only to those who want to be educated. And uh, because it it can be extremely exhausting to try and preach to people who don't want to be preached to. So uh, for of a person of color, um, I, I can say this for myself. I am a thoroughly cynical person at this point. One of my, this is kind of a tangent, but one of my favorite quotes in the world, I don't even know who said it or where I even saw it, but it just says, in the age of technology, ignorance is a choice. And so sometimes when I get a question like this, it is so, um, it's hard not to be a little bit upset because you're just like, how dare you ask me this question when you could have just like looked something up. And I'm aware that this isn't really something that is like widely spoken about, but damn it. I mean, you could like kind of Google it and maybe draw from something. Um, but, but, but either way, you know, just, just kind of understanding that from a, from a professional standpoint, I am happy to give you the animal expertise behind that question. I also think it's really important that for people who are polite about it, you know, the woman who was on the phone with me, who had asked it just as a pure caution is because her dog was reactive and nothing, obviously nothing to do with the fact that anyone was black. It's just her dog is just reactive, period. And in fact, I think this dog ended up having a reactive moment towards me because of how deep my voice is. Um, but not even, you know, not even the, you know, Taylor's color of her skin or anything like that. Uh, but I am happy to educate anyone who is open-minded enough to learn. And also remember that a lot of times when people are seeking professional advice, they're also paying for it. And I love to remind people that we are paid professionals. So I don't really like to preach for free, <laughs> to be to be completely honest. Uh, so that's kind of a funny story. Like Taylor personally hadn't been asked, but I had been asked, and which was kind of silly because I was like, um, I mean... We're not that much different in color, but thanks for that flag. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so that, that's just kind of that little uh, segue there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so a couple things on that. I have a, a couple thoughts. Um, for starters, you know, she's absolutely right. In the age of technology, like this is definitely something that you can easily Google. That said, um, not everything on Google is that reliable or even... Um, that accurate. (laughs) Um, even, even like the very first hit, um, on Google that comes up is a psychology today. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but that particular article has a bias and the bias is wrong. And even though it's, it's on a psychology today platform. Um, and so it's, it's not, um, it's not an, 
unusual or um, I wouldn't judge someone if they were like, I did a Google search and I found out that dogs can be racist. So therefore my dog must be racist, right? I'm not going to judge you for that, drawing that conclusion because I know there's misinformation, but that was precisely why I was motivated to put my video on the internet. And that's precisely why I'm so glad that more people like yourselves are doing these podcasts and these episodes, because we need to flood the internet with more accurate information so that these things are the first things to come up when someone's doing that Google search. Um, yeah. And I think that I have a couple perspectives. For one, um, I can tell you just as like a white trainer um, that I, when I posted my video, I got a lot of messages from trainers being like, Oh my God, I've asked, been asked this and I did not know how to know how to answer. And I totally understood because there have been times when I've been asked, Hey, I think my dog is racist. Like, can dogs do that? And I, I was a blubbering mess. I'm like, I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> you know, like, where do I start? Um, and that's really how it comes down to is, is where do you start answering that question? And what I really, before even doing the video, um, what I really decided was that I'm going to answer that question in the same way that someone would say, I think my dog is afraid of balls, or I think my dog is afraid of light posts or, you know, whatever stop signs. Because to me, that, that gives me the same amount of information. Now, it does tell me a lot about the owner, which again, from a professional standpoint, I have to put my personal opinions away, right? I'm looking at this objectively, but as far as it tells me about the dog, it says that there's some sort of trigger in the space and I need to figure out what about that trigger or what about that stimulus is causing the dog to become reactive. Um, so I followed up with more questions. Okay. Your dog had an incident with a black person. Um, what, tell me about that incident. What, what happened? What was in the environment? Um, okay. Well, is it common for your dog to become reactive towards people? Is it, or is it common for your dog to become reactive in public places like that? Or right. There's more follow-up questions. And interestingly enough, the more I ask my clients questions, they'll come to the conclusion themselves right? They'll figure out, okay, I guess maybe, maybe it's not necessarily that the person was black. Maybe it's just that there was, you know, this loud noise or there was construction. Oh, okay. So that's something we can work on. Right. And I find that if you are a pet professional, particularly a dog trainer, and you are faced with this question, in my personal experience, I found that it's better just to follow up with a ton of questions and let your client come to their own conclusion. And generally speaking, well, personally, I've never come to a, a, a situation where the client has come to the wrong conclusion. And after me asking all these questions, they were like, oh, now I still think my dog is racist. That hasn't happened. Um, but, you know, if you think that it's going that way, then, yeah, just say, like, look, here are the facts. Um, we know that dogs do not have the literally the physical capability in their brains to have higher order constructs. And racism is a higher order construct. And so what you are projecting on your dog is something that he literally from a physical standpoint is incapable of doing. Um, and I think that if we start proposing it like that, then we're able to remove our um, the awkwardness of the conversation, right? Because I think a lot of pet professionals, particularly, quite frankly, if you're white, you don't want to agree with the person, but you also want to be friendly, 
right? So for example, you might smile at the client when they're asking this, but you don't want that to be presumed as you agreeing that yes, the dog is racist or yes, this is an idea that I want to proliferate. It's not, right? So there's a lot of like social intricacies about this conversation. Um, and I would say that that's one of the reasons you, if you are a professional, you need to rehearse this conversation in your head before it hits you. You need to practice your answers. You need to go through the stream of consciousness ahead of time so that when someone asks you this question, you already know what route you're going to take. You already know how to handle this situation. Um, and I think that a lot of the benefit of us doing podcasts like this and, and conversations like this is that we are forcing trainers to think about these things. We are forcing trainers to have to play it in their heads. And that is so important. Um, I think that as far as like a casual conversation, if I was, you know, at Starbucks and I happened to be, you know, petting a cute little puppy, um, my boyfriend's black. So if I, I can totally see how this situation would happen, <laughs> careful, I don't know if my puppy will like you. Right. Um, and I think that there are, it, it, it depends on the situation, right? The different contexts are going to necessitate different responses. Um, but I would probably say, well, you know, if your puppy is having issues, can we equate some sort of positive association with this event? What things does your puppy like right now that Tyler can give your puppy or that Tyler can create with your, with your puppy to make sure that there's this positive association? Sometimes you don't necessarily need to, um, you know, go down the rabbit hole of let's get into a racial conversation in the middle of Starbucks. Um, but we can still start to say, well, I think we just need to look at this from a different perspective. We just need to create a positive experience. And your puppy is loves pup positive experiences. Your puppy is, is inclined towards, you know, a frappuccino or a cappuccino or whatever they call them at Starbucks. Let's give your puppy that, right? Um, and having those different conversations. But like I said, having the, the confidence in yourself in that moment is really important too, I think. Right. Um, feeling like, you know, I can, I can handle this conversation. This isn't something that I'm not equipped to understand. Um, something that really motivated me to, to post on YouTube and, and to tackle this discussion was that, like I said, at the, at the time, I didn't realize that it was a difficult conversation. At the time, I didn't realize that, um, you know, I was navigating something that was that some people may not have been willing to navigate. Right. Um, and so I kind of went in and a little bit naive and I jumped in head first. And while I was in the middle of the pool, I'm like, oh, crap, there's people drowning out here and they need my help. And that kind of motivated me to post it on the Internet. Um, but I think that also kind of woke me to the um, importance of this conversation on the whole. Um, okay. I wanted to add, that was, you said a lot of great things right there, Jenna. Um, this is great for pet owners, yes, but for pet professionals, this is so important. Um, Gio and I as well, we received a lot of comments about the video and when 
doing the video with Jenna was very nerve-wracking because um, I've been talking about race and everything. I am a black person, so I've been I've been in all the conversations. So bringing it to dogs was nerve-wracking for me because um, I'm a black trainer. Smart bitch is very proud of who we, very proud of who we are. We always post about it, but predominantly, if our clients are white, and we didn't want to lose clientele by talking too much, but. At this time, at this day and age, we're like, you know what? Screw it. It's who we are. We're going to be proud of who we are. That being said, um, we received so many messages about uh, from white trainers, um, Jenna, saying that, oh, well, we get we this question all the time, too. Oh, my goodness. But we also heard of really troubling stories of trainers and other professionals perpetuating this idea that dogs can be racist, which it pisses me off to no end because as a pet professional, um, we are rewards-based, positive reinforcement trainers, full-on, full-forth. And if you are a pet professional who prides themselves on education, then I think you can answer this question even without Jenna's video. It, I, to me, as mm -hmm. a as a black trainer, I never had to worry about answer uh, fumbling on this question because, number one, I am black. I have dogs. I was raised. I was raised with dogs growing up. I was in a community that loved dogs. Um, and besides that, as a trainer, I know enough about dog, how dogs perceive the world and how dogs think that I can deduce without even going to Jenna's, um, Jenna's video that, no, that makes no sense. Here's why. And when, when we put the information together, when I was putting the outline together for the video, we had a long outline. It was like two pages long for Jenna's video. I was like, you know what? Yeah, this is all the answers to that question. Here it goes. Then in like five hours, done, boom. And the fact that there are pet professionals out there, no matter what you are, groomer, trainer, veterinarian, and you are perpetuating this idea, it is so harmful. And it, it makes me so angry to the, point, to the point where it's like, you know what? I, how can you, I understand dog owners being confused and wanting, you know, want this question to be asked. But if you're a trainer saying, you know what? Yeah, I think dogs, you know, I think sometimes they don't like black people. Oh, I think sometimes they react to black voices. Or I think sometimes that they react to, um, oh, I think, I don't think my dog really um, cares for how you, um, how you walk. And I'm like, what do you mean how I walk? <laughs> what are you trying to say? So when we talk about systemic racism and how it's present in every form of our lives, which is just really sad, and when you have pet professionals perpetuating this idea this is systemic racism this is how it starts so it's coming from the top and the fact that we really didn't get that many um uh comments or any quotes from higher you know higher organizations that i will not name to help beat down this idea the fact that curtis geo jenna and i had to answer this question as nerve-wracking as it is it's like okay guys if all these trainers are saying that they always get asked this question and even though I was never asked that question, I had we have several clients who kind of allude to the question in a way. If if we can't have a blanket answer for them, or you're in perpetuality, you know what? In that case, your dog may be racist. That's a problem. And when mm -hmm. black people or other people of color hear about this, like oh, you know, uh, hear about people believing this, then maybe uh, a kid. Maybe hear his about this. Oh, I hear. I thought I heard um, from someone that a dog could possibly be racist. Okay, maybe I shouldn't be around dogs then. Do you see the problem with this? <laughs> like our our field is already um, is 
not that diverse. I'm one of the only, but Curtis, right? Hi, Curtis. One of the only black composite trainers. And it's like, I want, I want more black people to be in this career with me. Um, and I want kids to look up to me like, oh, wow, that's cool. You can do that. If they have a perceived notion that white people think that dogs can be racist, they're not going to want to give dogs a time of day, which is a problem. So we have to be, we have to be, uh, we have to use our, our brains a bit better. Um, we have trainer brains. We all have qualifications. I'm CPDTK. Geo is too. Most of us have the letters behind our name. I think this is a very easy question to debunk. I think you should go re rehearsing your mind because you know sometimes you know crap. This is a weird question. I get the, the the fear, but we can't perpetuate it by agreeing with it. Oh, like Jenna said, ask those questions, follow up with those questions, and you will come to the answer to yourself. But don't you dare <laughs> perpetuate this idea, or you risk creating this, this this culture of dogs can be racist, dogs like white people more, or things like that, which is not the case. <laughs> I have to put that in there. Sorry, guys, for the tangent. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, bouncing off of that, too, I think my favorite thing about um, being a part of podcast videos and this conversation um, being brought up. And I know Kayla earlier, you had mentioned uh, being a little late to the party, but honestly, that's fine because uh, people of color, first of all, if you are not aware of this, most people of color are very cynical of these types of movements because they gain a lot of traction for about two weeks and then everybody forgets about it. So the fact that it is well over a month and a half later and we're still talking about this and albeit sometimes continuing to talk about this and seeing this um, not just racist dogs, but just racism in general being so prevalent in the media right now. It is exhausting. However, it's the work that's got to be done. So, uh, so first of all, thank you for continuing to, you know, to bring it to the light because somebody is going to listen to this. And I think another thing that I want to say is for those of you who are asked this questions, who may not be as eloquent in speaking like myself, I come across very abrasive. I basically just open my mouth and scare people sometimes. So if you get this question and you don't know how to answer it, congratulations, you now have not one, not two. There are several resources where you just need to save these links to your phone. And the next time somebody asks you this question, you're like, um, you can literally just give them the short answer. No, follow, text them the link and be like, watch this video later and let's get on with animal behavior. Like, because a lot of times when you, you, you crack this topic open, and somebody is paying you for um, a training plan, you might be spending the next hour trying to explain to them, trying to get them to wrap their head around how their dog possibly can't be racist. So if you don't even want to explain it because maybe it's just emotionally taxing or you're just really annoyed or maybe it trips you up and you get nervous about it, like just save the link to your phone, whatever, whatever it is. Maybe it's the video, whether it's the shorter video or the two hour video, whatever you feel like your person can digest. Um, I think for me personally, I would share these links, not because I'm speaking on it, like, oh my God, listen to me talk, but um, I, would, <laughs> I would share it personally um, because I do have a tendency to like, oh crap, like I may come across as too much of a bitch in this moment and I don't want to scare people or to feel like I'm judging them I, you know, I don't necessarily want that because I feel like if there's judgment coming across, people are going to be less likely to digest the information. If they feel like you are judging them, um, they're not going to want to hear it. Um, and also, if you refer them to this link and they still, like Jenna said, if somebody were to end up coming to the wrong conclusion, then guess what? They're probably not a fantastic client, to be completely honest. And if they can't digest the notion that a dog 
physically is not capable um, of racism, then they're probably not going to be able to teach their dog how to properly sit and stay for, you know, two minutes straight and be like, you know, and I, I know that these two things seem like they don't correlate. But like Taylor said, as a pet professional, this is a simple thing to debunk. And it should be actually, it's a relatively easy thing to digest as well. It is simple as saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, that's your dog. They have the emotional capability of a 2.53 year old toddler. And therefore, because toddlers cannot be racist, your dog cannot be racist. And you have, if you really have to explain it that much further, your client's probably a racist. <laughs> if I'm putting it, you know, uh, blatantly, which I always do. So yeah, loving, loving, absolutely loving having these resources, save them. If you're a pet professional, keep them handy. I don't know if you're using Google docs or what, if you need to text it to yourself, um, but keep them handy. Um, and I think for me personally, I think the last thing I want to mention is, you know, if, if there really is something that you need to tell people is that racism, uh, it is a little bit more of a broad topic. However, the core of racism stems from hatred. And like Taylor mentioned earlier in this podcast is that dogs are literally the most, you know, pure creatures out there. So like, please don't ruin a good thing here. They are fantastic. They're pure and they don't understand hatred. There's not a single dog that I know just hates things. It's that they are extremely fearful. So again, going back to those animal behavior and actually seeing what the dog is fearful of and not trying to assign some type of hatred um, malicious notion onto your dog. So that's another thing that you can mention. I wanted to add one more thing before I forget this. Um, sorry, guys, talking so much. But the, um, I wanted to add to the harm point because I, I had a thought about thinking about what if some, a pet professional does think this and they refuse to, to change their mind, depending on what field they're in, um, in our industry, it can cause so much, so much um, damage for example, let's say this person is a high up in a rescue and they control who gets dogs, who gets to adopt dogs. Can you imagine someone who is who perpetuates the idea that dogs can be racist? They're probably not adopting dogs out to uh, families of color. Which and do is, you think they're hiring, they're hiring people of color then? Say it again. Do you think that they would be hiring people of color then as well? Probably not. No, they wouldn't be. So it's it is so many levels to it. So that's why I'm so happy we're having this conversation. It's so important to debunk it as many times as possible and be anti, be actively anti-racist because just. Just avoiding the question isn't good enough, as Jenna said. We can't just avoid it. Oh, that's crazy. Like Gio said, it is. it can be exhausting to read about racism and all that stuff like that. But just so you guys are aware, I am 27 going on 28. All my life I have been taught how racist people can be. So imagine how tired I am and how tired people of color are of being, of experience racism. So don't get tired of us having the conversation. That's the whole point of the uh, making it less of a thing, you know? So keep that have to be an, as actively anti-racist and do our best as pet professionals. If we are the damn best trainers at dog behavior, then we need to be the, the, the damn best at answering this question and debunking it and making sure that we put our clients on to some higher thinking. Yeah, I, uh, I actually have been asked to my face, oh, is my dog racist? And this was after 15 minutes where in that time I had the dog learn its name to touch, to sit, to down, to stay. 
And like nothing, none of these things were things that the people had done. So on the few times that, and my, my professional answer was look at how your dog is behaving in relation to me in front of you and tell me like you're, I taught your dog more things in 15 minutes than you have in six months. Like really, really tell me. Um, and usually to the point of them being not uh, great clients, I think if somebody is, somebody is willing to ask that question and then also struggled greatly with just looking at how their dog was interacting with me and not being able to say, oh, I guess you're right. I don't think my dog is really racist. The level of perception needed or to be not observing their dog's basic behavior is also, I think, somewhat correlated with the perception of, oh, I like my dog is racist. That's okay. I think, uh, I think the level of cognitive dissonance needed for both of those are uh, somewhat similar. And in casual life, I, I don't even get asked that question. The question that I get asked is what are you? Uh, Because I'm very, depending upon how long my hair is, I'm very racially ambiguous. And so people just straight up ask me essentially what, how should, what kind of racist box should I put you in? Like, tell me, like, I have uh, these racist opinions, but I have to be careful about which ones exactly I say to you. Uh, And when people have their dogs out in public, it's the, the by and large, the assumption, even when I'm in the full eggplant, purple pet parent allies gear, treat pouch clickers everywhere, and just like smell like a billion dogs and their dogs are clearly into it. The automatic assumption that I get a lot of the time is that person of color, I don't want to interact with their dog regardless of whatever their dog is saying. So in casual life, uh, the, it's not even those types of questions that I get asked. It's like the, the silent question of is just more an assumption of like, Oh, you're a black man of color. You must not want to interact with my dog. So regardless of whatever my dog is doing, swimming towards you, super excited, I'm going to walk away and just assume you don't want to have this interaction with my dog. Um, Or they ask, what are you? And I say human. And they say, no, but like, where are you from Philly? No, but like ethnically, what are you? You don't get to know that. Or, or I'll just say guess and whatever their answer is. I'll say, yeah, sure. Because genetic, because genetically it's actually true. I, um, like whatever their, whatever, whatever their guess is, it's gonna, it's gonna be uh, like right somewhere in some little percentage. So, like, uh, if somebody really wants to dive down that hole, eventually I come to a point where I just say, like, this isn't information that you need to know, and uh, it makes me suspicious that you're so pressed on knowing it. Yeah, that was that was so perfect. I don't know if they can tell on the podcast, but we were all like laughing because that was so spot on. <laughs> it was so perfect. Um, 
But yeah, so I just kind of wanted to add that that's one of the reasons why I think, and I, I mean, I know that my channel, my my social media, my platform is a little bit more science-based than other people's cup of tea. I get that. Um, but I think that that's also one of the reasons why I am such a advocate for other, especially positive professional trainers to be more science-based and to really demonstrate that end. And I know that that's what we do on this podcast as well, because it really weans out your clientele. When you are very forthright about, look, I, this is, I go off the science and it, you know, I'm a nerd at heart and this is how we function in from my business end. And if that's not you, that's cool. Go somewhere else. Right. Um, and that has been so beneficial just from a um, business end, but it also keeps my circle with people that I actually want to interact with. Right. Um, it, it, it makes sure that I'm not getting any bad apples in my circle. Um, because just, you know, like, like we've all said, we're all willing to educate those that are willing to learn. Um, but the people that are adamant within their mind, um, you know, it's almost too exhausting to spend time educating because we get nowhere and that's all. (laughs) For sure. Um, yeah. And I think, um, kind of circling back to that self-education, um, when people Google things, you know, we've talked very briefly about, you know, I'm just kind of skimming through like, yeah, psychology today. I've read that article. It's not perfect in any way, shape or form. And I, I wrote an article um, a while back that's, I think, fifth on Google right now. And it says, why is my dog racist and how can I fix it? Um, and I think my that title is really problematic, but I'm aiming to try to educate those people who already have made that conclusion that their dog is racist. Um, and then it goes, the article immediately goes into how your dog isn't and a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Um, and that's one of the things that I've really worked to build my brand around is writing things in a way that um, when people are Googling things that have already kind of made an assumption that I would like to undo, that it will actually show up for them on Google. Um, And that's how I like interacting with those sorts of clients is they get to read the blog post and I never necessarily have to talk to them at all, um, which is really great for me. And if I am talking to someone who has paid me, I, you know, like you, Jenna, I kind of go back to the same thing I would talk to them about with any other um, issue as a certified dog behavior consultant. We're all pretty um, applied behavior analysis focused. Um, So I do a lot of, okay, great. So what do you see? You know, tell me what your dog is doing. Um, I ask, you know, we talk about like WTF, what's the function of your dog's behavior? If they're growling at a given person, does that, that probably means they want space. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're (laughs) racist. Um, And okay, then great. What are we going to do about that? We go into the ABCs, the antecedent behavior and consequence of that. So, okay, you're an antecedent is someone appears. Um, The behavior is that your dog growls. The consequence is you jerk on the leash. Um, what have you just taught your dog about someone who appears at the end of your road? Um, so it's a lot of, you know, as we've said, kind of the same stuff and helping guide them towards that decision on their own. And if someone's getting really sticky, then yeah, we might go into like the neurobiology of your dog. Um, or if there's a specific situation, I actually, it was funny, well, not funny, but um, literally on Tuesday this week, um, my dog put a big old hole in his paw um, and was wearing a cone 
saw the first black person we've probably seen in two months. They just moved into my apartment building and my dog is wearing a cone. Can't see the guy. Um, he's really, really dark and it was dark outside. And he kind of like, as the guy came into the vis- like the scope of his cone, he started growling. And, you know, a lot of times people would, again, then make this jump of like, oh my gosh, my dog is racist. It's like my dog had just been given a pain med. He's got a big old hole in his paw. He's wearing a cone. It's dark outside. My dog already definitely can be spookier when it's kind of dusky dark. Like, so what did I see there? Why, why did this happen? He was, there's just so many other reasons. And like to jump to the fact that it was because this guy was black and therefore my dog is prejudiced is just such a huge leap. You know, we might talk about the law of parsimony. That's one of Ursa's favorite things to talk about. And she unfortunately couldn't join us today is what is actually the simplest explanation here for what is going on and racism for a dog is not going to be that simplest explanation. Um, We are going a little bit long. um, So let's jump briefly into um, some different behavior change plans we might talk about. I think we've already done some brief discussions on counter conditioning um, that I think we're all going to bring up. But um, let's talk about that. And then Jenna will close a little bit with that study. um, And then we will try to wrap it up so that we don't end up uh, blowing our listeners' minds for five hours. Um, so does anyone have anything kind of like specific? I, again, I think most of us are probably going to go the counter conditioning route if someone feels that their dog is fearful or someone comes to us believing their dog is racist and then, you know, it actually is fear. Um, what are some of your favorite exercises? We'll go Taylor and then Gio. Um, my favorite exercise to do is to engage, disengage game. Um, but before I get to this game, I like to focus, um, Gio and I like to focus a lot on, um, it's kind of annoying some clients, but we don't care. We like to focus a lot on basic training um, first. Make sure that foundation is solid, no matter if the dog has gone through training before. We found that we really we need to we need some behaviors like leave it. We need some behaviors like focus. Um, so the dog has something to draw on. A lot of times um, when people call us, the dogs have never been through any kind of training. So the first issue is having people realize, you know, your dog needs some tools in that toolbox in the brain so he can choose to make better decisions. So getting some foundation work in and then moving on to the rehabilitation work or the counter conditioning work, we like to focus on engage, disengage, which is your dog sees a trigger from afar and um, they engage with it. We give them a treat when they engage with it, if they are engaging in a good way, meaning they're not they're not too startled by it. But before we get to this, this point as well, uh, we need to make sure we identify exactly what the triggers are. So we will go through a consultation with Smart Bitch and we will talk to you. We, we talk the entire time. And then on the first session or during the consultation, we haven't done um, any in-person in a while. But if we were in person, we would do a brief walk. Usually these issues stem from walks. Okay, we go on a, walk, a brief walk to kind of see a little bit of it. Not trying to spook the dogs um, fully, but we just want to see a little bit of it. And then we work on, like I just said, the basic training and then the... Um, we have work, and like I said, the engage disengage game is our favorite thing to do to help start this off. Yeah, to bounce off of that, um, yes, we we focus so heavy on beefing up the basics for several reasons. Uh, one, it gives us the opportunity to uh, teach the client as well. You know, this is a teamwork thing. Um, rehabilitation, counter conditioning is not magic. Many people contact us thinking they're just going to like drop their dog off at my house and like, we're just going to fix it. And we, <laughs> we often educate them and let them know like, uh, no, that's not how we train. Um, 
uh, we this is this is going to be an experience for both of you because more often than not, your dog's reactivity um, probably stems from your behavior more. You know, so you also need to learn how to do X, Y, and Z. The other thing that's uh, you know very interesting about when you start with uh, building up that toolbox or their dialogue between them and their dog is that oftentimes people actually don't want rehabilitation or the counter conditioning work. And although we would love to get that far. Um, it's really important to know that oftentimes that type of work can be expensive and many people are okay with management tactics and just teaching them, you know, what is appropriate, what's not appropriate. Here's how you can manage it better. And for those who are ready to take that next step, they have already been with us long enough to understand how we train, why we train. And then we often find that they are starting to draw their own educated conclusions before we even get to the quote unquote um, engage, disengage game. And oftentimes before we even get to that first actual rehabilitation session, the, the client has already been doing it on their own without even knowing that they were doing it. So it really is uh, training the human. I mean, that's, I mean, any dog trainer will tell you it's a lot of just training the human. Um, I hope <laughs> for most people, for us, it is for, for the vast majority, it is a lot of training the human. So that is why we like to start with beefing up the basics. Um, and then when we get to the triggers, really teaching people that just because you've gotten uh, this far with the basics, you know, now you're back to another type of square one. Um, you don't get to just throw your dog to the wolves. So, okay, yes, your dog knows how to sit. That doesn't mean I'm going to take them to Home Depot so they can sit next to a forklift. Um, no, we're going to, you know, like a lot of times people want to take that leap. So uh, really teaching people that it is about uh, providing distance, providing time. And first and foremost, it is about going at the pace of the dog. Um, I know that there are a lot of uh, trainers out there who do not do the same methods that we do. Um, and it's a little bit more rushed based. It's a little bit more, let's get the results fast. And I, th those are not results to me. Those are quick fixes. Those are band-aids and we will never slap a band-aid on the dog. We are looking to rehabilitate the, their emotional responses towards things. So it's really important to people know that this takes time. You don't get to choose how quickly your dog learns. Uh, however, if you are patient and you stick to the plan, you are going to see some type of results. Um, it may not be that finish line you're looking at your dog. Your dog's not going to ever look at their trigger and just be starry-eyed or happy about it. Although if that does happen, that is a wonderful plus. But most people are very happy with seeing like, oh, you know, my dog used to try and bolt across the street when they saw a trash can. And now they're willing to walk past it. And seeing people be more appreciative of that type of stuff also uh, fixes their relationship with their dog. So that's kind of our our perspective, how we like to tackle that. Beef up the basics, see if these parents are really in it for the rehabilitation, and then keep going from there. Yeah, I, uh, I make a big focus on starting with all of the basics as well. Um, a lot of that for handler skill level sake because somebody who has not worked on a single command with their dog is not is just doesn't have the handler skill level to be working them down from uh, like all of these things that they would be reactive to. So just for and I also try to explain to people like working on uh, these behavior plans, uh, like working on the counter conditioning is a lot the same as doing training, just with way higher risk and way thinner margins. Where if you're working on basic obedience and you like you wave your treat and the dog doesn't sit the first time, like, all right, they didn't learn sit. 
But when you go out and you're trying to have them not react to a person and growl and bark and snarl and start to undo some of those associations, I, as a tra- as a handler, I think people need a certain base level of skill um, and observation and understanding of their dog's body language built up before it's uh, largely possible um, for them to be able to like engage with their dog in this way and be able to keep everyone safe um, and make sure that they are inching along on their, on their behavior plan. Uh, I also love adding in some up down regulating type games because so many, especially here in Philly, like there's triggers everywhere, like buses, planes, cars, trucks, people, dogs, chicken bones, what have you. Um, And so even in the course of one walk, if a dog has trigger, 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 trigger in a span of 15 minutes, how long does it take them to come down from it? Because for depending upon the severity of the events or how many things got lumped together could be days uh, before the dog is even in chemical equilibrium, let alone associating uh, anything positive with those events again. Um, so I also like to work in for people um, just having your having their dog get excited or aroused or very alert about something and then bring them down and bring them up and being able to practice those um, those types of things also helps for when uh, they're working on any type of reactivity, uh, any type of aggression or um, any type of fear that it's not you get like one walk every two weeks before your dog is back in a in a neutral uh with air quote state to where they can they can work on it again yeah and i just like to add that your dog's like speed of progress or rate of progress is directly related to how often they are put into contact with that stimulus in a, in a uh, methodical way, not necessarily just how often they're coming across the stimulus, but how often they're coming across the stimulus and it's actually a productive learning opportunity, right? Um, so for example, I sometimes get clients where they're like, oh my gosh, I've been training for two whole months. Oh my goodness. And I'm like, okay, great. But of that two months, how much has your dog actually been around the stimulus and it's been a productive learning opportunity, Right. Um, and when you actually start to think about it, sometimes they're like, oh, well, you know, I didn't get out of the house, you know, for 10 days because I was sick over here. And then I didn't do the X, Y, Z. And I'm like, okay, so yeah, you've been training for two months, but really you've only been training for three weeks. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you did four training months. sessions. That doesn't count. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, I think it's, it's important that we're constantly understanding that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean I do want to add the caveat that that doesn't necessarily mean take your dog out and train them to death every single day. And then you'll be done in 14 days. Like don't do that either. (laughs) Um, but you know, you just have to also have to have like a real, um, perspective of how much they're training. I think the one thing that I want to add on, uh, for every single behavior plan that I've ever written, uh, Progress is not linear is highlighted in giant bold red print uh, up at the top because for uh, working on any type of reactivity, fear, what have you, I people's 
days of progress are not linear in like whatever goal you have for yourself, neither is your dogs. Like they're going to have good days. They're going to have bad days. Uh, it's just important to keep in mind the, the larger trend of if three months ago your dog would lunge and snarl and actively try to bite someone and they have come to where they give a very harsh growl, that's still pretty amazing progress in that context of the those like what that dog's uh, behavioral vocabulary looks like. Yeah, definitely. And uh, listeners of the podcast are not going to be surprised to hear that I ask my clients to keep data on this. Um, I'm a big old spreadsheet advocate and uh, drive my clients crazy <laughs> with constant requests for, okay, what? how are we going to measure this? You know, what are we going to look at distance, speed of the trigger, um, whether it's a direct approach, keeping track of all of this and trying to uh, then be able to actually see that progress. And, uh, you know, I mean, any even like with potty training, like if your dog is still having one accident a week, it's still really frustrating frustrating, but that's a lot better than four accidents a day. And being able to see that improvement um, can be really hard for people. And having empathy for that is, you know, part of our jobs as well. Um, I think the, the, you know, I love the engage, disengage, or look at that type um, type games. Um, I love the idea of that up-down regulation as well. Um, and the one other one that I will throw in there for a lot of my clients is I really love treat and retreat. Um, particularly for fearful dogs. So if the dog learns that like, hey, when you see a thing you're nervous about, we're going to actually give you a treat and get out of there. And they learned that, oh, we can just, we could just turn around and leave <laughs> instead. Um, I really, really love that. Um, and I've also found a lot of dogs tend to be better when they're the ones moving. Um, and there's something else that's stationary. Um, that movement can just be really, really helpful. And it's not like that's just my personal opinion, but um, I don't know if anyone's actually done a study on that, Jenna, maybe. <laughs> not that not that I've heard of, but um, so yeah, the, you know, treat and retreat, engage, disengage, look at that type things. All of that is just really, really helpful. And I think basically what all of those do is it helps create a little bit more structure around counter conditioning because it is just so hard for people to get their minds around just trigger equals treats. And it's so easy for them to, you know, push over a threshold or just feel like they're not doing anything. And, um, while that trigger equals treats association might work in a lot of cases, I think clients struggle with that. So these more kind of specific games can be really helpful. Um, Jenna, let's talk a little bit about the 29 study, 2019 study from Carly Beth Hawkins and Alexia Joe Van Diver. Um, and then we will start wrapping up. Yeah. And I'll, I'll keep it short because a good chunk of their, so I will say that a good chunk of what we talked about today are things that they discuss in their paper. Um, so there were effectively two different studies. Now, one thing that I think is important to realize is that their, their study examined human perception, not necessarily dog behavior. And I think that for the common person who just reads something on the internet, they're not necessarily going to know that there's a difference. Um, but because humans have a, and particularly, um, dog owners who, you know, this isn't their career and dog behavior isn't their life. Um, they're less informed about how to distinguish what they think they're seeing versus what the actions of the dog actually is. Um, so this paper examined the human perception 
of dog behavior. Um, and they only looked at white and black participants. Um, so there definitely is room for more research um, to get more people of color um, represented in this in this data. Uh, but this particular study only looked at white and black participants. Um, and they asked participants to study their and, and, and take note of their dog's behavior over a span of three months. And then rate the frequency that a certain behavior happened. So how often did, you know, your dog pull and lunge towards a black person? Or how often did your dog wag its tail at a white person? Right. Um, and additionally, what they did was they put the participants, the human participants through a um, implicit bias and explicit bias test, which for the sake of speed, for the sake of time, I'm just going to say what they did was they basically sat them in front of a computer and they had to push one key or another key based off of how they feel felt about a certain image or a certain statement. Right. And it was supposed to be very fast. So basically impulsively, when you see this image, you think X or you think Y. Right. And how was your response? And that is how they gauged a person's bias. And what they found was that um, white per uh, white persons or white people's biases against black people um, were also in line with their dogs feeling a or perceived to feel a bias against black people. So what this means is that um, not necessarily that quote unquote black or, or dogs feel a bias against black people, but but that there is a correlation between what the humans perceive their dogs feel and how the human actually feels themselves, right? Um, I think that something that's interesting about this study, and there are, there are a lot of points that I won't necessarily be able to like hit, um, but something that I think is really an important point is that this study is about correlation, not about causation. So um, a lot of times we assume that just because a white person has an implicit bias and they're perceiving their dog to have a white uh, bias, that that automatically means, well, that white person must have clenched on the leash and that's what caused the dog to feel bias, right? That's not what this study examined. Um, what this study really looked at was, well, this thing is true and this thing is also simultaneously true. We need to find what is the link between the two, Why? what is causing these two. And the real hypothesis answer to that is that there's probably many things causing this correlation. Um, like for example, Kayla, you said that you live in a predominantly white state it's not your fault that, you, you know, like you're not in control of who you directly are not in control of who lives in that state. Um, on the opposite end, personally, I grew up in an exceptionally diverse city, like to the point where I didn't realize segregation was still a thing until I was in college, because in my world, we were all blended and it was an exceptionally diverse community. Um, and so the idea that my dog could be a racist was beyond me because my dog came into contact with people of color all the time. Right. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are directly causing it. It might just be a matter of geography. The other elephant in the room is that statistically speaking, there are more white people in America. 
you know? So just by sheer statistics alone, you are more likely to come in contact with white people than a person of color. That said, every single year, we are given opportunities to, you know, bring people of color into our world and into our culture. And we need to be actively seeking those opportunities out, not just for our dogs, but for ourselves as well. And these are all points that the paper really, um, you know, touches on and in different capacities. Um, one thing that they, they said was that, um, they basically said that the more contact a white person has in their day-to-day life, the less likely it is that they perceived a bias in their dog and vice versa. The more contact a black person had with white people in their day-to-day life, the less likely they perceived bias in their dog. So there absolutely is a benefit to interacting with people of color, not just for yourself, but it's more likely to give your dog that exposure as well. Yeah, that's really great. And one of the things I was thinking about as you're talking about the study, and I'll link to obviously your video, I'll link to this study, all of that is going to be in the show notes, guys. But there's another study that I will I will dig up and link to as well. Um, <laughs> that has a kind of funny title along the lines of like, um, pet owners and dog experts disagree on assessments of dog behaviors. But um, do, are you familiar with the study? But, but yeah, basically, the idea is, um, Experts and pet owners disagree. Um, experts are correct. Pet owners are incorrect about um, how to assess their dog's behaviors. But most people are incorrect in the same direction, which is interesting. So people are wrong about how to interpret their dog's behaviors, but most of them are wrong in the same direction. And it would be really interesting to um, read both of those papers back to back and see um, how related that we may or may not think they are. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've, I probably have seen that abstract. I haven't read the full paper. Uh, I don't think I have either, either if I'm being honest, yeah. <laughs> but I know I've, I've seen the paper and yeah. read the abstract. I, um, I think well, th- there's a lot of room and I'm, I'm a huge advocate. Anyone who's sliding into my messages or anyone who's emailing me, I am such an advocate that we need more data in this area. Um, and you know, not just looking at the dog behavior element of it, but also the human perception of it. I think it's important. Like I said, this particular study only looked at white and black folks. Um, But even Dr. Hawkins, she told me explicitly that, you know, we need more data, that this is meant to be a foundation study. This is not meant to be the end all be all solution to everything, that there is absolutely room for more information. And that, comes down to funding, if we're being completely honest. Um, so what we really need to do is, is the organizations and the groups that are able to contribute some funding, um, we need to encourage them to do so. And the way we do that is by making a, making noise. And the way we do that is by talking about issues like this and saying, like, these are where the holes are in our in our information, and we need to fill those holes. Um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I think I, I know I'm getting fidgety. I've seen several yawns and fidgets. I think we need to wrap it up. Um, I know we could keep going for a while, but this is, we've already gone a little bit over, um, even the longest time slot that I had hoped for. But, um, I really want to thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, let's have kind of each of you guys sign off with where people can find you. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of go in the same order we started with. So Curtis, then Jenna, then um, Smart Bitch team. Okay. 
Right. Uh, you can find me at Pet Parent Allies on Instagram uh, or at PetParentAllies.com. And if you're in the Philly area or have any questions about uh, any of the silly workshops uh, and when those become available, uh, you can email Curtis at PetParentAllies.com. I think I'm signing up for the beer discrimination class. <laughs> Excellent. I will, I'll fly I will, to Philly I will for it. say you, you need a lot of different good beers and like different types of beers around for it. So like it's good if you have like some IPAs, some stouts, some Belgians. You need you need a good uh, wide variety. I think we can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, excellent. All right, Jenna. Um, so you can find me at Dog Liaison. So Dog Liaison on Facebook, Dog underscore Liaison on Instagram. Now, when you are typing in Liaison, make sure you put the second I. So it's L I A I S O N, and you can also find me on YouTube at Dog Liaison as well. Um, and I am very active in messages. So I encourage you to reach out to me and ask me questions about your dog's training. I always tell people anything I can do, anything I can feasibly and ethically do through the internet, I will. <laughs> um, uh, after that point, then we have to sign up for services, but I'm happy to answer any questions that I'm able to. Hi guys, and last but not least, um, this is Taylor and Gio. Oh, you guys aren't talking, but I'll talk for her. Uh, smart bitch, modern dog training. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. For Instagram, our name is Smart Bitch Dog Training. For Facebook, it is Smart Bitch Modern Dog Training. Um, type the entire thing in for Facebook. Facebook doesn't like our name, so um, they tend to block us sometimes. But you can find us on Facebook, TikTok as well. Smart B Dog Training. Um, really important thing about us guys: we are we do in-person training, but we also do virtual training. We have recently launched virtual group classes. Um, we have a new round starting actually next week called Basic Bitch Obedience. We're very excited about it. So um, come be a basic bitch with us. We also uh, we are going to go on, we're going to go over basic manners, of course, and our other class we're super excited about is called practical bitch this covers practical life skills so certain tricks like back up get up get down get off um teaching dogs how to put their toys away teaching dogs how to go to their mat go to their place really practical things that you probably wish your dog could do you can learn how to do that with our class so follow smart bitch we are everywhere you you will find us pink and black <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Um, and I am Kayla Fratt. I run Journey Dog Training and we are Canine Conversations. Make sure you guys are subscribed if you aren't already. Um, you can comment, review, all sorts of stuff. Um, whatever you haven't done yet that all of the podcasts ask you to do, we would appreciate it. Um, you guys can find the episode notes, bonus materials. We'll link all of the papers and videos and whatnot we talked about in this episode at canineconvos.com. And that's canine all spelled out. You can always contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. Our theme music is called Funny Song. It's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Edie at beheard.org.uk. And our logo is from Walker Hooper, who is on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.